Blog Talk Radio. So we have no intro, as usual, because I haven't worked this out. Seth is manning the board today, and Kevin, uh, Kevin, and Tim Duncan is retired. What else is going on in the sports world except for the Mets thinking? Wait, I hear something in the background. Nope. Yeah, I did. Good morning. I let it. Hi, Sean. Hi, Seth. Long time no speak. It, it does feel like other, you know, yes, we did host a, host a show on July 4th, which is pretty much the Kevin Durant show. Um, and since then, well, there's been a little bit happening, a little bit of Wimbledon, a little bit of Euro, a little bit of UFC, uh, doping, big doping violation. And obviously the big news today, Tim Duncan retiring, almost universally considered the greatest power forward of all time and certainly the greatest power forward. And we've discussed a zillion times, very difficult to compare eras. But other than Kevin Garnett, I'm not sure there's anyone else you would even put in the discussion. Well, I mean, you could put people in the discussion, but the game was a lot different. I mean, you, if oh, Elgin no, Baylor our, is considered... No, I'm, a, saying in our, in, I'm saying in our lifetime. Oh, absolutely. There is no discussion as far as I'm concerned. There, look... Uh, Garnett is my favorite player. He's been my favorite player for the last 20 years since he graduated high school because that happened to be the same year that you and I graduated high school. So we've been, I've been following him since then. By far my favorite player in the NBA. He does not compare to Tim Duncan at all. But does, he, does he not compare from a talent perspective or does he not compare – because he didn't have he didn't have the teammates to have the success that Duncan had. I mean, Garnett's first twelve years were for all ten, eleven years were for all intents and purposes wasted in Minneapolis, going to one conference final. They never really had a great deal of talent, and you know, I, I wonder if in cer- certain ways that minimizes. Garnett's impact, but devalues him from an all-time perspective. Well, I hear you, but uh, we're, we're comparing one-to-one here. We're not looking all-time. And when, Ke- when Kevin Garnett retires, we'll give him his just due. But defensively, there is no comparison between these two players. I mean, Kevin, Dun- Kevin Duncan. I still want to call him Kevin Duncan for some reason. Tim Duncan may have been the best defensive player in the last 10 years for any position. After Olajuwon retired or, got, or decreased in his talent and got older, is there – I mean, Duncan's been on the all-defensive team how many times? I mean, he has won how many championships anchoring that team, and I don't want to hear that David Robinson was there because Robinson was only there for, what, the first two years, three years of his career? He wasn't there for no, the last it, it, 15. It, it was more than that, but agreed that after uh, Dunk, I believe Robinson won two championships with Duncan, the last, you know, one or you know, two, or one or two, I forget which against the Nets. Um, but I'm just, I'm looking at Kevin Garnett, defensive player of the year and a nine-time all-defensive first team and a three-time all-defensive second team. So he's certainly not, and also ran in that in that area. No, and agreed. I know how, agreed. And I know how big a fan you are of, you know, 
of Garnett. But, you know, and, and again, I may be playing devil's advocate because when you think of the greatest players of all time, although ironically, Duncan never won, he never won an MVP. Oh, actually, he did win an MVP. I'm sorry, 02 and 03. Um, but Duncan, eight-time first defense, all-defensive, all, to all defensive, seven-time all-second defensive. Um, I, as I said, these are the two greatest power forwards of our lifetime. I still consider – I consider Garnett more of a power forward than a center. And apologies to Carl Malone and to Charles Barkley. Um, but in my mind, these are the two you're looking at, and I think you have to compare them. Because he said it's hard to compare – Tim Duncan to Bob Pettit. It's hard to compare Tim Duncan to Elgin Baylor. It's a different game. Agreed. But, you know, when you go, when you think back five to ten years from now, well, what? How are you, you going? How are you going to see Tim Duncan? Where is he? You so know, what is going to be your indelible memory of Duncan? If oh, there is the one. indelible memory is very simple for me. It's his bank shot. Because there is nobody outside of Scottie Pippen that I remember that wanted to shoot a bank shot and actually got it in 90, <laughs> 90 to 95% of the time. I mean, look, you and I, we grew up at a time where you practiced shooting a bank shot. It wasn't, it wasn't a dunk. It wasn't a swish. I mean, we liked to switch the ball. It wasn't a layup as much as it was, let's take it from the elbow or a little bit outside of the elbow and shoot it off the backboard, hit that square, and put it in. And to me, nobody exemplified that better than Tim Duncan. And that is what I see every time I think of Tim Duncan, is him getting that ball right on the elbow, a little bit, maybe two or three feet outside on the right or the left, turning around, and just hitting a bank shot. And to me, when people call him the big fundamental, that's the fundamental that gets it. Because when we were – when we were kids, look, we're the same age as Duncan. When we were kids, that's what we were taught were fundamentals, shooting bank shots. So that's my indelible impression. What about yourself? It's pretty much the same. Um, there are a couple. There, I don't know how it could be anything else. The only other thing I can think of from a team perspective, because it's hard, it's hard from an individual. I mean, Game six of the 02 or 03 finals, again, I forget which. I think it was 03, where he was, I think, one block short of a quadruple double (laughs) is kind of a memory in that regard. And the centerpiece on that beautiful 2013 championship team where they just befuddled the unbeatable heat in a passing game we've never really seen before. But it is – the thing you think about with him is as great as he is, you very rarely think of him from an individual basis. And if people want to discuss it, 760-283-0846, you think of him as one of him and Pop. And him is one of the big triumvirate with Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker. As amazing as he was, he wasn't a guy who, what was so impressive was just his lack of ego, it seems, or, that, or how it was expressed. Yes, that the game was never about him. And he was perfectly happy playing a complimentary part, playing the main part. And he was able to show such a fluidity in doing that. And yeah, that, that, and that start, that, 
And, Seth, that started from the very beginning. Look, he deferred to David Robinson when Robinson was the guy until Robinson said, I'm not the guy anymore. He deferred to LaMarcus Aldridge this year. He's deferred time and time again to different players, so much so that he didn't want to – he played on, I believe, one – I don't think he played on an Olympic team. I think he played on a world, a world championship team, which I don't remember. I think they won. And then he said, you know what? Enough of this. I don't want to do this anymore. He's also a guy that was not originally an American. He, he's a U.S. Virgin Islands. That's where he came from. Right. And he decided, I don't want to play in the Olympics. It's just not my style. It's not an ego-driven thing. Look, Tim Duncan would have made, what, the last four Olympic Games? I mean, easily? It wouldn't have even been a, a, it wouldn't have been a chance that he would be off the team. And if he really wanted to play this year, he probably could have played this year too. If they're yeah, lacking he, he big did, men, he could have played he this did, year. He, he played in 04, actually. He was on that really that really terrible 04 team that, that uh, won the bronze. Um, right, I said he but, played in one. Yeah, he played yeah. in one. And he would have played in 2000 but had a knee injury, which kept him out. And then after 04, he was done because, again, his main concentration always was the team. And, you know, when you – and the thing that people love, and the thing when you think of when you put together your all-time team, the reason that he would probably be the power forward of choice is, yes, he averaged, whatever, 25 points a game, 23 points a game. Yes, he, you know, he had his 10 rebounds or 12 rebounds or whatever it was. But I was always more impressed with his ability to keep everyone involved and not to overwhelm everybody. And to me, that he would fit in, in any lineup in any generation and it would be – and that's how I'll remember him. And, you know, from that great draft in 97 – Seth, I do find it interesting. So this is, this is the year that the 76ers finally win the number one pick in the draft and pick Ben Simmons, right? And this is the year that Sam Hankey, who was universally denounced for, for pretty much tanking the entire last two years to get these draft picks, and finally come up with the number one pick, and yet he's not on the team anymore. We have to remember that when David Robinson got hurt, this is exactly what the Spurs did. They tanked for an entire year to get the number one pick, which turned into Tim Duncan. So I, I, I think a little bit of credence has to be paid to Sam Hinkie, even though he's no longer in the NBA, that – you know what? Even back then, in 1997, the strategy works. You just have to get that guy, and hopefully, Ben Simmons is that guy for Philadelphia. Well, you know, that, and we'll, we'll have a long time to make the determination. Although Simmons has been fantastic, supposedly in summer camp, the big the big free agent move since our last show, Mister Heat, is goes back to his hometown. Dwayne Wade turning down $41.5 million over two years in Miami to go to Chicago for four, signing for another extra $5 million, which when you include the taxes is probably less because since Florida doesn't have a, well, tax rate. Um, I 
can't even, I can't say I like the move, forgetting even my obvious loyalty for people who have been, who've stayed on teams for as long as they had to see him move is a little disappointing. I understand the value of going to his hometown. I don't understand the fit at all. This is a team that's in somewhat rebuild mode. Your best player is a two guard in Jimmy Butler. And this is not, I don't see, you know, with bringing him and bringing in Rajon Rondo, this is an awkward fit for Fred Hoiberg. I think everything that the Bulls have done this so far has been awkward. (laughs) Everything. Starting from Derrick Rose, awkward. And I understand they had to get rid of Derrick Rose. I get it. But I don't understand taking on Robin Lopez. And look, you and I had this discussion last year where you believe that his contract was severely overpaid. A, I'm not sure it's overpaid in today's market considering he's earning only 14 a year. But you're taking it on for three more years. You took on Jose Calderon, who you weren't able to trade, and now you hope to trade, but you're going to have to give a kicker with him. You're going to have to give Mike Dunleavy away and have a kicker with him as well in order to fit Dwayne Wade under the cap. So now your, your four best players are a point guard who can't shoot, a shooting guard who can't shoot, another shooting guard who can't shoot, and a power forward who can't shoot. So I'm sensing, and I'm you're trading away, and you're trading away your best two shooters, so uh, uh, in in Dunleavy and Calderon, and it, it'll be an interesting team. It may be the first team in a while that plays three guards at the same time, um, but at the same, in the same breath, you kind of say, "Well, what the hell are you doing?" I mean. You got a good rebounder, you got a center. And not that you need a center in today's NBA, but you need some big body. And they just don't have one. And they have three guys. Not only are they three pretty old guys, but they're three injury-prone guys. I mean, Rondo misses time every year. Dwayne Wade misses time every year but last year. Because I don't believe he missed any – I think he missed only three I, games last year. I think he played and 75 or 76 games last year. Yeah. And Butler consistently gets hurt at least for 15 games a year. So, great. We'll have two guys that are healthy every single game, one guy that may be healthy every game. None of these guys are going to shoot over 40%, and they take up about half of my cap. How do I sign up for that? Yeah, that works. So like I'm with logic. you. I don't, see, I don't see the fit. It sounds like the New yeah. York Knicks like three years ago. Oh, I was going to say the Chicago Bulls in the post-Jordan era. But, oh, um, yeah, it, yeah it, I mean, we had talked for all intents and purposes about the rest of free agency in the NBA. We didn't get a chance to talk too much about the NHL, which is, you know, we, we spoke very briefly about the Subban-Weber trade, the 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 Devils finally potentially getting a number one score, score in Taylor Hall. Uh, and your Islanders getting decimated with Esposo, Esposo going from uh, going to Buffalo and uh, Andrew Ladd coming in from Winnipeg. You know, any other thoughts, any other major thoughts on NHL free agency? Well, I was seriously hoping you wouldn't talk to me about this because I've been in mourning for about two weeks now. But <laughs> the fact is, the fact is, my Islanders screwed the pooch. I mean, that's the best way to say it. 
Garth Snow, he, he made a good pickup this past weekend in game, P.A. Parento, who does very well with, uh, with John Tavares. But at the same time, he lost a lot of talent. Franz Nielsen going to Detroit, Matt Martin going to Toronto, and, of course, Kyle Oposo going to Buffalo. And all he picks up is Parento and picks up Andrew Ladd on a huge deal, which I'm not really sure is warranted. So I'm kind of disappointed by what Garth Snow has in store. He now has three goalies there. He's going to be de- the Islanders are going to be decimated by that expansion draft next year. At least one of their defensemen is likely to go in that, and that's hard to take. The hardest part about this expansion draft is you have to protect a certain amount of people certain positions, and everybody else is open. So you're allowed three defensemen, eight forwards, eight forwards? I think it's eight forwards, and one goalie. Everybody else is open if you have more than two years' experience. So what that does is for teams that have a lot of defensemen, like the Islanders that are young and under short contracts, these are the guys that are going to be picked up by Las Vegas. And I'm, I cannot wait to hear what the Las Vegas nickname is going to be. I'm thinking it's got the Ramblers or the, gamblers. Or the Shooters. The, the, no, the Ramblers, not the Gamblers, the Ramblers. I'm thinking the Shooters, like shooting dice. I'm thinking the Shooters or something like that. Although that might go, people might start with the guns thing. Um, 21s, I mean, I, I, there, there are a litany of different, different names that could be brought to the attention of that. But... Yeah, all in all, the Red Wings made out well. Obviously, the Lightning made out well. They re-signed Victor Hedman. They re-signed Steve Stamkos. And they basically kept the team that they had. And they're looking to trade Ben Bishops right now. But for that same reason, they can't protect two goalies next, next year in the expansion draft. But overall, I like what Tampa Bay is doing. I like what Edmonton's doing. I love what the Devils did in getting Taylor Hall. Yes, I just admitted love what the Devils did. I got to tell you, though, kind of strange what's happening in the New York area for both the Islanders and for the uh, Rangers because the Rangers look like they're just old and have no direction whatsoever. But we'll see what happens. Look, the NHL is played on the ice. I sound like the guy from uh, Mystery Alaska. I, found, I sound like him right now. Yes, ladies, and, ge- yes, ladies and gentlemen, Sean is quoting a movie called Mystery Alaska that I am assuming 98% of the people who are listening to this podcast have never heard of. Well, my I wife just said it's her favorite it movie. Because, I suggest you see it because it's actually a really good movie, a hockey. And, Seth, I, I'm telling you, I might get you that for like Hanukkah or something on DVD because it's worth your watch. But uh, anyway, I don't think you need to buy me a DVD. But okay, please. Let, let's okay. I'll give you a four dollar gift gift certificate to Time Warner, and you can now go online and get the movie. All right, Excellent. let's move on to the Wimbledon. Let's move on to the tennis, and the Williams sisters racking up more and more wins. I mean, Venus making the semis, Serena winning it all. Is there any end in sight for Serena? I mean. Every time everybody thinks that she's done, she comes back and has a performance like she did this year. And she was brilliant in, at Wimbledon, only losing one set and winning a really competitive final over Angelique Kerber. Uh, it was more gratifying to see Venus back, making the semis, got a little bit tired, 
at that point. But considering the health issues she's had off and on for the last few years, it was nice to see to see her make, make the semis, win the doubles with her sister. And in regards to, is there an end, an end in sight to Serena? As long as she's motivated, there isn't. Um, she'll be the heavy favorite to break Steffi Graf's record for Grand Slams in, in, at the U.S. Open next month. She looked motivated, imposing, whatever verbiage you want to use. And yes, there are some, you know, there's some help, there's some hope on the horizon. Hope's probably not the right word. Kerber beat her in the Australian. Uh, the Spanish woman, uh, the name is Mirafesa, the name is escaping me off the top of my head. Beat her with the French. But when Serena is on top of her game, she is the best player in the world and has been for pretty much the last 15 years, maybe the last 12. And there is no end in sight as long as she's motivated to play. Okay, so moving on to the men's bracket. And Great Britain again gets the winner in Wimbledon, Andy Murray, who looked as motivated as I've ever seen him, even more so than the first win that he had. Is Andy Murray the best player in tennis right now for the men? No. No. Djokovic is the best player. The man won 30 major game, 30 matches in majors in a row. There, There is no discussion. Now, yes, he did kind of have a bit of a flame out in the third round against Sam Querrey. That being said, it was interesting because it's the first time Murray's really been a favorite in a major, whether it was whether it was Federer or Nadal or Djokovic, they've all been above him for the most part. And with Nadal out, Federer a little bit past his prime and probably will be kicking himself in retrospect for losing to, um, to Raonic, who played a heck, made a heck of a comeback. Um, Murray was methodical. Murray was tough. Murray's a really good player. But Murray is not Nadal at his prime, Federer at his prime, or Djokovic at his prime. He's just not. Yeah, it doesn't mean now he's not Murray, a great player. How, how, Murray is what, 24 at this point? 25? 25, give or to 25, 26, something along those lines. Okay, so is the prime, the prime hasn't been hit yet, right? I mean, men's tennis, it's a little mm-hmm. bit later than women's, I would think. No, I, your prime is around 25 for the most part. He was born, he was born actually, he's older. He's 29. He was born in 87. Okay, well, that ends that discussion. So, you know, he's he has a shot to win to he has a shot at being number one at being number one in the world by the end of the year if he can win the open. But again, I don't think anyone sees him as better than Djokovic. On a given day he can beat Novak. But right now it's Novak in my mind it's Novak is number one by a significant amount. Murray's number two by a pretty significant amount. Then you have Federer than everybody else. Okay. So going into the Olympics, you're putting the Olympics are before the U S open. And I believe yes. tennis is still part of the Olympics. So uh, in Rio, I don't know what the surface is in Rio. Do you, do you have an idea as to no, what that I is? I'm going to look it up right now. Cause I, I, I don't know. Knowing, considering how Rio seems to be going, they may be playing on actual garbage, like on a tennis barge or something, or on a barge or something <laughs> like that, because it's a freaking disaster. 
Uh, here we go. The tennis tournament, the 2016 Summer Olympics, will be staged at the Olympic Tennis Center. The competition will be played on oh, hard courts. So similar to the U.S. Open. So who does that favor? Because it doesn't favor Nadal. Well, Nadal's been injured forever, so nothing really favors Nadal. It's going to be – it'll be – it's Djokovic. Okay. It, it, it's – the hard – everyone is favored. You know, the hard courts are pretty – usually the rankings are – refer back to uh, to, the, to the rank – to the – the rankings correlate with hard courts almost more than anything else. And here I'm looking quickly to see who's going to be playing. All the, all these guys are eligible for the top 50. So I, everyone who's eligible to play can play, but you see, you know, a lot like in golf, all the top golfers are not playing. Jordan Spieth well, is out. Justin Johnson is bit. out. Um, McElroy, McElroy, McElroy is, is out. Jason Day is out, and I think because of the Open, because of Wimbledon, people have not been really. The tennis world has not been concentrating on Rio. Now, with a couple of weeks to go, there may be some determinations that have to be made. Whether the Zika is going, Zika virus, or any or everything else that's going along with it is going to keep them out. Well, I'm looking right now to see if anybody has withdrawn. And it does not look like, well, no, just golfers so far. I've not seen a tennis guy withdraw yet. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, because you got uh, four singles and two doubles teams can go from every country. So we'll see what happens. Um, definitely an interesting Justin Spaeth pulling out. Golf, who is making a comeback in this games, really is losing their star power. I mean, and I don't think there's anybody to blame for that because you can't blame the golfers. No. And you can't really blame Rio because, I mean, aside from all the crap that Rio's gone through with their, with their staging and their building and, and the fact that <laughs> the games right now look like they're a mess, they certainly don't control the mosquito population. I can't put that on them. So the fact is, it just is what it is, right? I mean, I think you're going to see a lot of pullouts from the sports such as basketball, which you already have, basketball and maybe soccer and sports that have other championships and see players stay in such as swimming and track where this is the mecca of their sport. Right. I think it's a pretty accurate way to, to perceive it. And you've seen that, as you said, with the NBA. In a, in a typical Olympic year, Harrison Barnes is not going to the Olympic. I, th- I, think, that's, I think that kind of says it all. Um, yeah. And it's a tip- and, well, it's interesting because Draymond Green got arrested yesterday, or this morning he got arrested. And the question is whether he'll even be going. So news from afar. So, jump. Pretty much, it's a pretty much a, a pretty jumping week. Jumping week. A lot of stuff going on. All star game tomorrow. So we're we're at the half. We're at the halfway point of the regular season. And the last time we really discussed baseball, uh, Sean was pretty much comparing the 2000, the 16 Cubs to the 27 Yankees. 
<laughs> and that's kind of. I knew that was going to come back to bite me. I it was. It. And I, and not that they have fallen off the waist, off the, not that they have fallen completely by the wayside, but they have not had the best couple of weeks. And they're still holding. Look, they still have a seven-game lead on the Cardinals, and but they don't have the best record in baseball. They don't. They're a they're a, a half a game. They have the best, the second best record in baseball by half game, and they're struggling. Now again, is it a short term? Is it a short ter- is it a short term issue? Is it a long term? I mean, they're going to win the division. They're going to be the, one of the favorites going into the playoffs, but they have not become the mon- you know they have not been able to maintain the monster start that Sean was convinced that they would. No, agreed. I mean, look, Jake Arrieta hasn't been pitching the way he did last year, even at the start of this year. John Lester has struggled a little bit. The back end of the rotation has certainly struggled. They're still going to win that division. I have no doubt. They'll probably still sweep the Mets next week when I'm in Chicago because guess what? They've swept in the last two years that I've been in Chicago. So I've never seen a Met victory in Wrigley Field, although I've been there for the last six games. So if you're a Cubs fan or you want to put money on a game, put it on the Cubs versus the Mets next Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday because I'll be at Wrigley, and chances are there's no way the Mets win a game. But that being said, I wanted to bring up baseball for another reason, but I'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, the Cubs are falling behind. And guess what? The Giants are the best team, at least in the, in the National League. I think they're the best team in the majors right now. They, they have the best record in the majors uh, at 57 and 33. Yeah, the Cubs at 53 and 35. And both the Reds, the, the Nationals, I was about to say the Redskins, Jesus. Nationals and the Rangers are 54 and 36. And those are the only four teams at 600 or above. Well, and the Giants do it the, the same way they seem to always do it. Pitching and defense. Yep. Pitching and fundamentals. Yep, pitching and defense. They are very much the Cardinals. They remind me of the Cardinals of the 80s. I mean, they don't have the speed that the Cardinals did. But if you look at those Cardinals team, they have one guy that hit over 20 home runs or 25 home runs in Jack Clark or Pedro Guerrero, the guy that first base. And with Hunter Pence out for the Giants, it's basically been Brandon Belt, Buster Posey, who who doesn't really hit a whole lot of homers, but he certainly is their best hitter, and a whole good lot of pitching with Madison Baumgartner, and which may be the pick of the year, Johnny Cueto, which nobody saw starting the All Star team. Yeah, which nobody saw. Cueto struggled in Kansas. He won his title, but struggled in Kansas City, and the last year and change. You know, but we all we thought it would be a pretty good pickup simply because he didn't have to be the ace. Where he wasn't, he was he wasn't being dependent on per se. They, you know, San Francisco's always had a solid lineup, solid pitching staff, and you know, to be the second or third starter in San Fran is a lot different than being the ace in Kansas City. And you know, Cueto thirteen and one, I think about a two point five, two point six ERA, something along those lines. Now, certainly in the Cy Young running as well. Although, well, remember, as usual, Johnny I assume you Quito give it to Kershaw all... above anything else. Well, remember, all... no, right now I'd probably give it to Cueto, but if you, but if you recall, Johnny Cueto's got an out in his contract. So 
one year, like he's, I believe he signed a five-year contract, but he's gotten out after one year. So 13 and one with a one, one or two ERA, sort of looking for that new deal. And he'll probably get it. No question about it. Uh, the question is, where does he get it from? And if you look across the league and you look across all the major leagues, there's one team that really, really needs pitching, and that's there in Boston. And, but I would, you find it hard, again, again, this is free agent down next year. We're not talking, obviously, a trade at the bet with a team that's leading the majors in, in, in record. Uh, for free agent for next year, that's certainly a distinct possibility. I'm looking at Kershaw statistics. 11 and 2, and you're a sabermetrics guy. 11 and 2, yep. a 1.79 ERA, a whip of under 0. 0.8, a 16 oh, yeah. to 1 K to walk ratio, averaging three shutouts and averaging over seven innings per start. And when and you look at Cueto, 13 and 1. 2.5 ERA, a whip of one, K to walk of five, about seven innings per game start, and four complete games, two shutouts. But you know, along with Baumgartner, obviously the top three. Uh, I think I would have Kershaw number one at this point, especially because Cueto the last couple starts hasn't been as good. But, you know, those three are – the National League is stacked – at, at in the pitching world, you look at the year that, that Noah Syndergaard has had. You look at the Stra- Strasburg. Yeah, you look at Marietta. I was just bringing. The, yeah, I was just about to bring up Syndergaard, who's nine and four with a two point five ERA, has eighteen walks against one hundred and twenty eight strikeouts, which is ridiculously incredible, and his WHIP is a one point oh seven. So, yeah, pitching wise. Look, the National League is always going to have better pitching. Always. Yes. And the reason is that they don't have to face the DH. I, I mean, it's pretty basic is that at almost, if you're not facing Madison Baumgartner, a free bat at the end of, the, at the end of every eight hitters. You get a free guy. So, or Bartolo Colon, for that matter. Uh, so the fact of the <laughs> matter is Nash, National League is generally going to be a better pitching league than the American League. That's why it's incredible where you look at guys such as Cole Hamels that's pitching in the American League right now with the same stats that he basically pitched in the National League. You marvel at that stuff. And where they where the Rangers, although they are in first place, miss Hugh Darvish because he was putting up similar numbers before he got hurt last year. Uh, a team that has been a bit disappointing, but a team that you expected to be a little bit disappointing after last year's run to the to the uh, World Series. Your beloved Mets and a pitcher who has not lived up to expectations and now out for the year in Harvey. Did they miss their chance to trade him? No, because there really wasn't a chance to trade him. That's the problem. And look, Matt Harvey may come back to be the Matt Harvey that we know from the last couple of years, and he may not because this uh, aortic, uh syndrome that he's got that um, has affected many pitchers. You get a guy like David Cohn who came back from it, and you get the pitchers that have not come back for, from it. The, the hardest part, as you said, is the trade value because you can't trade him this offseason. 
the best shot that you're going to have is if he comes back strong next year to trade him at the all-star break or even next off season. The problem is if you trade him at the off season next year, a team is only getting one year of Matt Harvey. You trade him at the all-star break. You hope that he comes back really strong with a beginning in spring training and the first half of the year. But if you're the Mets and you have Matt Harvey and the rest of the pitchers, especially if you have Zach Wheeler coming back next year, the question is, in that pennant race, would you even consider trading a Matt Harvey if he's pitching well? So I'm not sure they they lost the value. I think you were you're, you're of the belief that they should have traded him this past off season, and I'm not sure anybody would have taken him coming off last year's injury. Oh, you what a at, at the halfway point the Yankee. You now, if I remember correctly, you were you were pessimistic on the Mets, optimistic on the Yankees. I was kind of pessimistic on both, but more optimistic on the on the Mets. Yankees going nowhere, still with a dominant bullpen. Are you trading? Are you are you now? Is it, if you're Cashman, are you finally conceding that they have no they have no chance at anything here, and they just need to start rebuilding? Do you trade Chat? I mean, Chapman's value is de minimis, but do you trade an Andrew Miller? What would you be doing if you were Cashman right now? Well, if I'm Cashman, I'm looking at the standings right now, and I'm seeing if I want to make the playoffs, I need to probably get to 88 wins. That's probably the threshold, 88 wins for the wild card. In order to get to 88 wins, I have to go 44-30 and 30 in the second half. 44-30. and 30. That's incredible baseball for a team that I don't know what their record is now. Seth, you could tell me. But they're not 44-30. and 30. No, they're 44 and 44, actually. They're 44 and what? 34? 44 and 44. They're 500. Right, so they're 500. So they have to go 44 and 30. So they have to be a lot better than 500. They have no reinforcements coming. And unless they make a big trade to get those reinforcements, they are going nowhere. The problem is the only reinforcement that's coming is Mark Deshera and – we know what Seth's thoughts are on Mark Deshera. So the fact is, if I'm Brian Cashman, I'm looking at this and going, I got Batances, I got Chapman, I got Miller. Hmm, what teams need these guys? Oh, the Cubs need some of these guys. And the Cubs have the best, have the best list of prospects, list and actual talent, in the major leagues. And they want Andrew Miller? Gone. They want Chapman, gone. They want a Batances. I'll, I'll keep Batances because Batances is still on his pre-arbitration right. contract. He's, he's still on his rookie contract. He's still very young. And, yeah, but I agree. The idea of trading, tr- the rest of the team, in my mind, is utterly tradable. The value they have, I don't know, other than a few names. But this is a team that is old, is tired, and is just going nowhere. Kind of similar, most likely, to what the Knicks are going to be in a few months. Um, really, just my, ooh, mired in mediocrity. Apparently, our dog agrees. Wait, wait, but there, wait, but there is a difference between the Knicks and and the Yankees, right? The Knicks have one big hope. There's a no. The fact is that the Yankees play in a league with no salary cap. They can go out and spend whatever they want next year or the year after or the year after and, and get much better while the Knicks operate in a 
in a confined space where it's very hard to get better, especially since in the, I mean, if you wanted, if the Yankees wanted this year, they could go out and sign every single Latin American player that's coming through the minor, uh, coming through that's not draftable. Or, right, that's not draftable. What would happen is after that, they would have to take a year off because that, those are the rules. But they could do it. They could open up the paycheck and then pay, sorry, open up the wallet and and sign checks left and right. They could do that and have and have done that. The issue is for the Yankees is that the free agency market this year sucks. Yeah. The one guy that they could have done was Steve Strasburg. Well, he resigned, and they're pinning their hopes on next year, hopefully getting uh, Bryce Harper after 2018. So, which I think they will. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that they will. But there's a big difference between the two the two situations. The Knicks are just going to be old and stuck in their cap, and the Yankees are going to be old, but they can go out and, and make things happen. Who would be your MVPs at the halfway point? So I'm always against an MVP being a designated hitter. Always. I I I'm, I struggle with a designated hitter being an MVP, but I have a really hard time overlooking what David Ortiz has done in Boston this year. I mean, for a guy that's in his swan song, he certainly ain't hitting like it. So I would pick either him or Xavier Bogarts, who is his who is a Boston shortstop, who also has had a phenomenal year, and Lee, and in first place. Uh, and I think, again, it would be something to behold to see a 40-year-old designated hitter, potentially a guy who's hitting right now 330 with 20 homers and 70 RBIs, really a bona fide threat for this. I mean, you have your your, your old reliables in, in Trout and then Josh Donaldson. Like, and as you said, Bogarts has been fantastic. Jose Altuve has been unbelievable. And that would probably be my pick at this point. But – I don't. I agree. I don't think you can. I don't think you can walk away from including Ortiz. And the irony of that, obviously, in his final year, would not. It would be. It would be fascinating. It would like it would be Mike Messina walking away, almost winning a Heisman, almost winning the Cy Young, winning twenty for the first time, and retiring. So Who would it be for odds, you? Hold on. Hold on. The odds in as of June first at the Bovada. Um, the Bovada Casino have Manny Machado first, Mike Trout and Robinson Cano third, Altuve fourth, Bogarts fifth, Cabrera sixth, Donaldson seventh, and Ortiz eighth. Now this was a month ago, so it could have changed since then. But those are the odds right as of June first. In the National League, look, you have the best pitcher in the world in Kershaw. Now the best pitcher in the world doesn't necessarily win the Cy Young. He might just win the MVP. Now, the problem I have with them is that he's not in first place. And, look, as much as you want to say that the most valuable player doesn't have to come from a first-place team, it has to come from a playoff team, and I'm not sure the Dodgers make the playoffs. But right now, they are. You have Daniel Murphy, who I think is having a phenomenal year. Not only I'm thinking, he is having a phenomenal year. He is having a phenomenal year, yes. He's tailed off a little bit. I like Harper. I like Orenado. And it's a Mets – the Mets actually made the playoffs, 
Jonas Cespedes has a very good shot of winning the MVP. But right now, if I'm picking an MVP candidate, it's a little bit of a surprise because it's not a guy that hits a lot of home runs, which is generally the way that you win the MVP. But I think it's the guy that holds the team together and is still doing amazingly. And that is Ben Zobris of the Cubs because I think he has been the MVP of that team. And if, if you're the MVP of that team, you're going to be the MVP of the National League. As you said, the Cubs have had so, have so many people you can throw in there. Zobrist, Rizzo, uh, Chris Bryant, you know, Nolan Arenado in, in Colorado has been phenomenal. Matt Carpenter has been really good. You know, there's a bunch of names you can throw out there. I'm still going with Kershaw, assuming, again, assuming they make the playoffs. And that's certainly nothing – there's certainly nothing, no way for to know one way or the other. You know, Corey Seager even, although, I mean, I, I think he just settles for rookie of the year this year. But, yeah, that, I, I, no argument with what you're saying. We talked briefly about the National League, Cy Young, and the American League. I think it's Chris Sales to lose. Well, you know my feeling on Sale. I think I pointed it out earlier this year. Sale's been phenomenal. And he, he's putting up historic numbers, or at least he was. He, they, look, the Sox have tailed off a little bit, no longer in first place. But at the same time, you're right. It's absolutely his to lose. There's nobody else even in the wrong as far as I'm concerned. If you want to look at Boston, Stephen Wright, you're not going to give it to a knuckleballer that's having a one-shot deal. Not going to happen. So, no. yeah, it's Chris Sales to win. He's the guy. And you know what? He, the last couple of years, he's actually deserved to be in the running. But because Chicago's been that bad, he hasn't been. And hopefully he gets his due this year. Look, Sales has been one of those guys flown under the radar because when he came out of college, when he came out of the draft, everybody thought that his arm would fall off because of the bad delivery that he had, the bad mechanics. And what happens with bad mechanics is you screw up your arm because you have different torque. He's not a tall guy, but he throws over the top so well that people thought he was he was an arm injury waiting to happen, kind of like Billy Wagner when he was throwing from the left side. But he has totally changed his delivery to compensate for that, and he's become the best starter in the American League. The last five years, he's been the best starter in the American League, bar none. Uh, I, and I think it's by a pretty significant margin. I, I'm assuming you're, you're, you would think that – Corey Seager would probably be leading the National League MVP, National League Cy Young race. I can't imagine from, from who the, else it would be. From, yeah, from the guy that dropped Corey Seager in the second week of Fantasy League this year, I, I humbly state that Corey Seager should be the rookie of the year and, quite frankly, maybe the best shortstop in the National League right now. Could be. Is there an American League – is there an American League rookie that hits you? I guess Michael Fulmer in Detroit. Um, is there anyone else that really that really run, that really sticks out to you? The problem with Michael Fulmer is he used to be a Met prospect, <laughs> and he got traded, and he got traded for, of course, Jonas Cespedes. So you're kind of going, uh, really, Fulmer? Is that really happening? But, yeah, it's really happening. Um, I would like to say that there would be somebody else, but I do love Fulmer. 
And uh, I think that he is probably the guy uh, that's going to do this this year. And like I said, I wish it was anybody else but him. And the thing is also, you have to look at uh, Nomar Mazarana from Texas, who's got 11, homer, 11 homers, 36 RBIs. By the way, we missed Travis Torrey from Colorado and Diaz from St. Louis, who actually have better stats than Seager. Not, not batting average, but look, Story's got 21 homers and 57 RBIs. Seager's Story got is the, fir- the first start- week of the year. Story is one of the greatest story, quote-unquote, sorry so- for the pun, stories you'll ever see. Right. Well, Diaz has a better OPS than Seager. I mean, there are other guys, but I think Seager, if he plays, he's playing on L.A., L.A. will likely make the playoffs, while Story will not. And I think that is uh, going to be the denominator that basically wins him that crown. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it, it's Mazara or, I'm sorry, I'm blanking here, or Fulmer. Look, Fulmer has had a couple of uh, – couple of injuries recently hasn't been able to make it out but he's had a great first half and uh look when you when you're learning from justin verlander there are worse people to learn the, the art of pitching from now well, maybe you can also learn how to pick up women that's true considering uh i forgot who, who's who's his wife kate upton kate upton so let me switch back we got 10 minutes ago and yesterday i saw something which made me very, very happy. Portugal wins the – I don't even know which title they won because there are so many that happened in Europe. Was it the Eurocopa? (laughs) This is the European Championships. This is European Championships. So many championships. So the European Championships, Portugal wins one nothing. And and I'm deferring to Seth because obviously this is not my forte considering I just said it was Eurocopa, which I'm not sure actually exists. I think it's just it a sounds, it sounds like a it sounds like a venereal disease, or, or a very good Italian dish. Actually, one does not go with the other. But I was going to say is, six of one, half with, dozen of another. <laughs> yeah, but they did win without their best player. And yes, I. Look, I, I work for a company that just merged with a French company. So we're on a call this morning, and all the French guys are arguing back and forth, back and forth, and speaking in, in French. And my boss and I are on the call, and he looks at me, and he goes, so how do I get them to stop arguing? And I go, hold on a second. So I take myself on mute, and I say one word, Portugal. And all of a sudden, the entire call went dead nobody spoke <laughs> for 30 seconds and then, uh, and then what, my boss this and is I why you do, this is why this is why you do not this is why you don't do business development <laughs> because the, object, the objective of people you're trying to have contracts with does not include bringing up one of the more painful losses in recent memory of their let's, national let's team. understand let's understand that was my own company and i said that and then I, we, we started in a discussion about, about the game yesterday, and I, and I said, you know what? Not only did you lose, but you lost to a team that lost their best player in the 22nd minute. So I have a problem with that. And I did get the, yes, we know. Yes, we really know. 
you can stop talking about this now. We know. I was like, I was like, great. So I was in England when England lost to Iceland. And now I was, I was dealing with my French com- compatriots when they lost to Portugal. So I watched most of the game. Portugal looked good, but France should have won that game. No. Oh yeah. France. You could say it in French. You could say it in French. It's we, 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 France. I saw the second half um, of the game and I've watched a lot more of, uh, of the cup than you have. Um, France is a much more talented team. This is not even, this was not even considered a good Portugal team. This was considered the best Portugal teams are the teams of 10, 12 years ago with Louis Fio and Ronaldo at 20. This was a mediocre team that the only reason they qualified for the second round was because UEFA changed the playoff system or changed the advancement system where instead of 12 teams moving on, 16 did. They had, they got a pretty good run through playing in the semis, a Wales team who was playing greatly on a very extraordinary well on emotion, but their second best player was out. And because of their mediocrity in the, in the, in the round robin, they got to avoid, look what the other side of the bracket was. Germany, Spain, Italy, and France. As opposed to Northern Ireland, Wales, Belgium, who's probably the most talented team, but perpetually underachieved. And, I mean, you even look at the guy who scored the goal, Eder, was benched in his, on his normal team in England, in Swansea, on a goal that Hugo Lloris probably should have stopped. They played a boring game. They did not play. They played a very defensive game. But at the end of the day, five years from now, all anyone is going to remember is that Portugal won the championship. And if there's anything else that they remember, they're going to remember that Portugal won without Cristiano Ronaldo, one of the two best players of his generation. And Seth, I'll tell you, that injury did not look, that injury was scary. That injury, the way that his knee buckled, and I am no medical, uh, definitely am not a medical professional. I've seen enough injuries, especially to me, to myself and in other sports, that I wouldn't be surprised if he's out for a good amount of time because that knee certainly buckled in the wrong way. And for a guy to come out in the championship, a guy of the caliber of Ronaldo, you know that thing must have been hurting. I mean, he pl- tried to play for five more minutes, and then he just sat down. And that's saying something from that type of guy. Yeah. It, the problem is we all know that in the soccer world, there is, a, there is a, an unbelievable amount of diving and perpetuating injury well beyond what it actually is. So when it actually does happen, and again, I was not, I, I saw it on replay. I was not there watching it live. Um, you kind of shake your head a little bit. And it was incredibly unfortunate that Ronaldo, you know, we talked about him versus Lionel Messi. Now, Messi's made the finals of the World Cup, made the finals of twice of the Confederation uh, of the Copa Americana. This is Ronaldo's first championship game. And to be to be knocked out on such a terrible play by Payet, 
is really disappointing. But, he, I mean, you could see the emotion that he had coming back, you know, after the 90 minutes, give speeches to be the de facto assistant coach. And really, you, it shocked me how emotional he was after the victory. I, I really didn't think it meant as much to him as it apparently did. Yeah. Well, we've got about four more minutes left, and let me let me hit hit on this real quick because it's something I wanted to talk about in the baseball section and never got to. And it's something that really is bugging me over the last couple of weeks. My beloved New York Metropolitans, and Steve Summers is the one that calls them always the Metropolitans, but I call them that as well. You have taken the game and made it dirty for me. And that's really hard from a lifelong Mets fan. Look, I loved Jose Reyes when he, when he came up. And I loved Jose Reyes when he was speeding around the bases when he was on the Mets four years ago, five years ago, seven years ago, ten years ago. One of my favorite players. But for the first time in a long time, you put winning above morality. And I know this is every, – every fan has this, this time in their, in their fandom that they look at themselves in the mirror and say, can I still root for this team based on what they've done? I can still root for my team. Look, I am ashamed of what they've done. I can still root for my team. I cannot root for Jose Reyes. I can't. I can't be happy when he gets a hit. I can't be pissed. I'm, I'm totally emotionless when it comes to him. He should never have been signed by the Mets again. He shouldn't have a place in baseball. And for those that say that he, he didn't have to stand trial, he wasn't found guilty, blah, 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 blah. That's all I, th- that's all I hear is blah, 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 blah. You will never see me purchasing anything as Jose Reyes' name on it. There is evidence that he choked his wife. There is evidence that he laid hands on a woman was, and was unprovoked. Not that even prov- provocation does that, that warrants that, but unprovoked. Shame on you, Mets. You have made my football watching this year incredibly dirty. And I, I, I just don't have more words than that. I wish you had never signed him and you basically put winning ahead of morality. You were better than that. All right. I got one minute to discuss two quick. Number one, Miko Grimes, Brent Grimes' wife, who came up with the brilliant anti-Semitic tweet this morning, got to respect Stephen Ross. Of course, Stephen Ross, the old Miami Dolphins um, owner, for keeping his Jew buddies employed. Yeah, but but you can defend. I'm sure Malcolm Glazer, owner of Tampa Bay, or Grimes' new team. I'm sure he's thrilled. Of course, and a Jew. I'm sure he's thrilled with this with this commentary. And Grimes, you know, a former All Pro, and the Dolphins have said have admitted that part of the reason that they released him was because of her. Shut your damn mouth. And you know. There's really no in a time where everyone is being so politically correct. Everyone is kind of on edge on these kind of things. Horrendous. UFC, John Jones, disappointing. UFC sold, bought for $1 million, sold for $4 billion. Pretty good profit return. We'll talk about it next week for Sean Palmer. This is Seth Kamen, Seth and Sean Sports Radio.